Good morning. We'll be looking this morning at um, Romans chapter 4. Just so you know what I could have done, um, there's a great Reformed preacher um, named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He probably spent about eight sermons on these ten verses that we read this morning. And I have one. So brace yourselves. Just kidding. I'm going to... It's been a challenge this week. How do, I, how do we get across... Um, the many complexities and the points that Paul is making here in these, um, these amazing verses in Romans, how do we drive that home, uh, but in such a way that doesn't keep us here for hours? Because it is amazing what Paul is saying. Um, and so I'm going to give it a try, and, and bear with me, because we're going we're to go back and forth a little bit. But what we're going to see at the end of the day, what I want you to know is how do we receive the grace of God, okay? How do we receive the grace of God? If this is going to be successful, you will know that answer by the end of this sermon. And you might know some other things, but you will at least know that. That is my prayer. So let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, open it up. If you've got a phone, you might want to pull it up. Carrie is going to pull it up on the screen for sure, but it's going to help if you can follow along. Now, up until this point, Paul has been talking a lot about how we are in need of redemption. That God has given us a promise of redemption, but he spends a lot of, talking, a lot of time talking about how we need this promise. How we are in a broken relationship with God. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But he's, he's led us up to that, and then he presents his great solution in Romans chapter 3. We are redeemed because... Of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That God offered over Jesus to be a sacrifice for our sins so that we might be made in right relationship with God. That's the great um, climax, the culmination that Paul is trying to make is Jesus Christ is the source of our redemption. And now we're going to figure out how we receive that because it's a little complicated. For years and centuries... The Jews, and Paul himself was a Jew, and, and, and the followers of God, of Yahweh, they thought they were the recipients of God's promise because of what they did and because of who they were, that they were somehow the ethnic people of God, the sons and daughters of Abraham, and so that made them special, and because they were special, they were given the law, and because they followed the law, then one day God would restore them and redeem them. And now Paul is saying, well, that's not exactly the case. This promise is not limited simply to you Jews. It is open to everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. And it's not by following the law, but it's by faith in Jesus Christ. And so now all of a sudden everybody is a little confused. What is going on? How do we receive the grace of God? So we're in Romans chapter 4. We're going to begin at verse 13. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That's the whole sermon in one sentence. I could stop now, but I won't. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world. What's Paul talking about? Paul is talking about the simple fact that we need God to be restored to him. 
God's talking about the promise made to the Jewish people that they would live in relationship with God and one day the kingdom would be restored and they would live on in eternity with God. That's the promise he's talking about that. But the root of that promise is the simple fact that God is holy and we are not. That God is righteous, to use Paul's word, and we are sinful. And that relationship needs to be bridged. And if you don't get that, if you're sitting here and thinking, well, I'm okay, I'm pretty good, then you will not get the gist of Paul's letter. He's saying you are not good and you do need help. I think most of us can agree with the statement that this is a broken world and we are a sinful people. Take a look around. ISIS, poverty, cruelty to children, the disease, cancer, death. It seems apparent to me, and I would think to many of us in this room, that something is not right, that something in this world is broken, that there's something that, that, that this can't be how it's supposed to be. And I think that's evidenced by our behavior. Even folks who don't believe in God are still trying to make things right in this world. There's something wrong. But it's not just the world. Look at your own hearts. Yes, there's something broken in the world, but is there not something broken in each one of us? Think of your selfishness, your repetitive, destructive behavior to yourself and to others. Anyone who's had children knows sin. And I'm not talking about the sin of your children. I'm talking about the sin of your own heart. When they're not doing exactly what you want them to do at exactly the right time. You know what that's like. There's something in us. It's not just the world around us. It's very easy to say they are wrong. But can you say, I'm broken. I'm messed up. I need salvation. I need the promise of God. And so Paul will declare in chapter 3. He says, all have sinned. You know this verse. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The reason for this, the reason for our brokenness and the brokenness in this world is simply the fact that God is holy and we have disobeyed him and we are not. And everything has fallen apart because of that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there's the promise that we've talked about, okay? If you were to read on in chapter 3, after Paul says that, he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption in Christ Jesus. So we're broken, we've fallen short of God, and God has said, I'm going to, in my grace, send my Son, Jesus Christ, to pay a sacrifice, to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin so that we may be made right with God. That is the promise. Restoration to God. And so when we get to chapter 4, Paul is showing us how this works out with Abraham, okay? The promise to Abraham and his offspring that we would be heir of the world, that we would be made right with God, did not come through the law, okay? So now if you were a Jew, you might be tracking, you say, yes, the world's messed up, 
yes, you know, maybe I'm messed up from time to time, but I do my best, and I follow the law, and because I'm a Jew, and because I follow the law, and because I do the right things, I am being made right with God. And you might even say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, and I follow him, but to receive that, I still need to follow the law and behave rightly. And Paul is saying, no, that's not how it works. It can't be dependent on our behavior. He says in verse 14, if the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, if, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. What is happening here? Paul is saying, listen, just because you have the law, that cannot put you in right relationship with God. Just because you're children of God by ethnicity, just because you've been given these rules to obey, the simple fact of the matter is you can't live up to them. You can't follow them. You will fall short time and time again. And if your relationship with God is dependent on you obeying the Ten Commandments, I'm sorry, you're out of luck. It can't happen. It won't happen Everyone in this room knows that. The law cannot be the basis for our salvation. And in fact, Paul says, those of us who have received the law, and especially talking to the nation of Israel, you've received the law as a way to show God's holiness to the world. And so basically what you're saying is, we believe in this God who loves us, who called us to be his people, and therefore, we're going to show God's character by obeying his commands, by how we behave. And so now when we go out there and when they go out there and break the law and behave in ways that don't honor God, what are they saying about the God they believe in? When we go out and slander and gossip, what is that saying about the God we believe in? Is it a God who loves gossip and slander? When we go out and hate the world around us, what is that saying about the God that we believe in? And so there's actually a responsibility that comes with knowing the law. You're reflecting God's nature and God's character. And because we can't do that and because we can't follow the law, we actually stand condemned even more so. We cannot be made right with God because of our behavior. I want to pause there for just a second and think about one implication of this um, for us as church people, if you will, because most of us here are church people. We like to talk about how our salvation is a gift, how God is gracious and loving and he gives us this gift of salvation. But at the end of the day, okay, if we're really honest, at the end of the day, we simply want others and we want ourselves to behave correctly we talk about grace but at the end of the day what we want actually is behavior and so when we parent our children oftentimes you know we have this ideal that we should be parenting them to know a loving and generous and gracious god but at the end of the day oftentimes we just want them to behave and not embarrass us and go to bed and eat their dinner we actually don't care what we're teaching them as long as they do the right things we'll be pretty happy right We look at this world and we want a Christian culture. 
But instead of trying to capture people's hearts for God, we really just want them to behave like we want them to behave. We want them to do the right things. We're not as concerned about them knowing love and grace. We talk, we talk the right way, but I think at the end of the day, often we just want people to behave. We want people to come to church. We love visitors. We love guests. But when they get there, they really need to do the right things, don't they? And believe the right things. But that's not how it works. We're elevating the law, is how Paul would say. We're making following God dependent on what we do and how we behave. And what is the conclusion? If Paul says that the promise depends on the law, then faith is null and the promise is void. It does not apply to you if you think it's about how you behave. If God's promise is based on the law, then God's going to make you be accountable to that. But okay, you think it's about behavior, tell me how you behaved and we'll see if this thing's going to work out between us. And that's not a pretty thought. So, back to verse 13. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith came through the righteousness of faith. So now what Paul is going to do is say, listen, you've got the law, you've been made into the people of God, but there's something happened before that. Before Abraham was the father of Israel, he was actually received by God through faith, by the grace of God. And so he says in verse 16, it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace, okay, grace is God's work, not ours, and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not just the Jews, but Jew and Gentile alike. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. And so Paul's argument then will go something like this. God made a promise to Abraham. And if you read all of chapter 4, you would get this uh, more clearly. God made a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation, that he would inherit the land of Canaan, that he would be a blessing to all people. Abraham at that time was childless, and he was 100 years old, and his wife was 90. And God said, you're going to be a dad. And so Abraham said, okay, okay. If you say so, God, Abraham believed God. He had faith. And because he had faith, God counted it to him as righteousness. Do you see that? Because Abraham had faith, God said, you're righteous. It's not because Abraham behaved correctly. It's not because Abraham was special. It's simply because God made a promise to Abraham, and Abraham believed it, and God said, you are righteous in my sight. You are restored to me. We are in right relationship. The promise I'm making to you will pass down through the generations, not because of what you've done, but because who I have made you to be. And you have received me in faith. This was before Abraham's covenant of circumcision. This is before God gave the law to Moses. This is before Israel entered the promised land. This is before the Jewish nation even existed. This is one man receiving a promise from God that he might be the father to all of us. To all of us by faith. 
And then God goes on to count Abraham, I mean, Paul goes on to count Abraham's faith. Verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. Now remember, Abraham is 100 years old. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distress made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in faith and he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, before we start thinking, well, Abraham must have been some sort of superman to have faith like that. Consider... um, Paul's doing a little bit of selective reading, okay? He's thinking back to Genesis chapter 15. God has said, I know you're old, Abraham. I know your wife's womb is barren, but you're going to have a child, okay? This is Genesis 15, and and Abraham's faith is counted to him as righteousness. He's made right with God. Anybody know what happens in Genesis 16? He sleeps with the maid so he can have a child. It lasted about two days, this faithfulness. And that's not all. If you read all of Genesis, you'll see that Abraham um, consistently lied about Sarah and who she was to save his own skin. He had doubts. He had fears. But at the end of the day, he had faith. He had faith. God continually said to him, I will give you what I've promised. I will do what I've said I will do. So much so that when God said, Abraham, I've given you your son, Isaac. Now I want you to offer him back to me as a sacrifice. They were saying, well, you said he would be the father. I'd be a father of many generations. It doesn't work if it's just one child. And God said, you have to trust me. Abraham willingly is ready to sacrifice Isaac before God calls it off. At the end of the day, he was a faithful man. But it wasn't because he was always faithful. It was because he was always reminded of God's promise to him. And so the way we receive the promise then is not by what we do, it's not by our works, but it's by faith. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. God has made a promise to everybody in this room. If you have faith, you will receive Jesus Christ. You will receive salvation. When you look at the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of your heart, God is saying, if you have faith, You can trust that you've been redeemed. A couple of thoughts then on this faith. First one. Your faith will not save you. Okay, Faith is how you receive salvation, but your faith will not save you. This is important to know. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ offers us salvation. Faith is only how we receive it. And even that, our faith is a gift from God. Think about it this way. You don't just wake up one day and meet a stranger and say, oh, I trust you. Right? It just doesn't happen. You're not going to just wake up one day. I mean, you might, I guess. I can do anything. But for the most part, you're not going to wake up one day and say, okay, I trust you, God. And then you've accepted him. It takes a while. You trust somebody when you experience them and you know them and you're in relationship with them and maybe you wrestle with them and argue with them a bit. But at the end of the day, you find out that their word is true and that they are trustworthy. That's what faith is. It's a gift. 
God's not inviting you to somehow conjure up more faith in your heart. He's just saying, seek after me, and I'll give you faith. Come before me, and I'll show you what it means to believe. He's not inviting you to have more faith, but to have more of him. When you have more of him, he will give you more faith. Second thing, the object of our faith is not an idea, <coughs> but a person, okay? It is not an idea, but a person. It is Jesus Christ. That's who we have faith in. We don't have faith in the idea that Jesus died for us. We have faith in Jesus Christ as a person and who he is. We often want our faith to be about what God does rather than about who God is. But that won't give us a heart conviction. You know, sometimes we know things in our head, but we don't always know them in our hearts. The object of our faith is not an idea that we agree to, but it is a person that we believe in and we trust with our lives. You saw it in our gospel reading this morning. Unless you take up your cross and follow me, right? If we're going to believe Jesus... We have to follow him. It's not an idea. It's faith in him that he is who he says he is and will do what he said he will do. And finally, faith is holistic. It's about all of us, okay? Um, <clears throat> it will eventually change the way we behave. It's not just agreeing to something. It's about behaving in a way that indicates we trust this person who has made the promise to us. If we trust God, if we have faith in Him, then over time, everything we do will be changed. Everything, all the things we behave, we'll stop trusting in ourselves and start trusting in God to provide for us. We receive the promise of God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. I want us to bring, I want to bring this to bear um, in two different ways, and then we'll, we'll finish up. <clears throat> the first one is this. Some of you are sitting in here and you're thinking, oh, I, I must need more faith, or I think I have faith, but I'm still not doing the right things to follow God. And I want you to hear this, okay? Hear, hear me this morning. If you're not sure if you believe or if you're wondering if you believe enough, I want you to hear this very carefully. It's not about what you are doing. It's not about being a great Christian or being a radical Christian. Will you do something great down the road? Maybe. God certainly will use you and he wants to use you. But right now, it's about receiving grace. Don't do anything. Hear it. Receive it. Let it come to bear on your heart that Jesus Christ loves you, not because of anything you've done, but because he made you and he wants to be in a relationship with you. Just hear that. Don't do anything. Don't stand up and raise your hand. Don't go out and serve the poor. Just sit here and listen to that and let the reality of God's love come to bear on your heart. That will awaken faith in you. That will change your life. Yes, you'll go out and serve God. Yes, you'll follow him more closely. But you've got to let that come to rest in your heart first. The second thing is this. Many of us um, are getting ready to serve God in some amazing ways, and we already are. Um, and I do want to bring it to bear one particular thing that we're getting ready to do here at St. Paul's, right? Our tea room is coming up in two weeks. 
Too often, the way we serve God becomes about what we do and how we do it. And this happens in the church as well. It's not about that. It's about grace. And it's about love. And it's about reflecting to others the things that God has given to us. And so as we serve the Lord, if we, if we have our eyes always on whether it's uh, presenting the perfect lunch or presenting, you know, raising the most money or selling the most desserts, if our goal is the end of the day is how we have behaved and how we've done, then we will not reflect the grace of God. But if our goal is our love for each other, our service with each other and to this community, well, that's really giving it over to God because we might not be perfect. In fact, we won't be perfect. I'm waiting tables, or I will. I haven't signed up yet. I'm waiting tables. You get me, it's not going to be perfect. It might be awful. But I'm going to try to love you as best I can. I'm going to try to show you the grace of God. And it's not just the tea room. It's in our offices. It's at home. How do we reflect this love of God that we've received? It's a gift. It's not based on anything we've done. How do we reflect that in such a way that God is glorified? Only by faith in God, that he'll do what he said he's done, that he's given us his son, and he's given us salvation, and he wants us to show that to the world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your gift to us that is faith. Thank you, Lord, for your gift to us. It is your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, may you continue to awaken faith in our hearts that we would receive Jesus and his salvation more and more. And then when we turn to live our lives, that we would live lives of gratitude to that salvation out of faithfulness to what you've done. That we would not base our status with you, base our status in this world on what we do, but that we would base it on who your son, Jesus Christ, is. And we ask this in his holy name. Amen.